You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now, here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Witowski. He is co-founder and CEO at Solera. We're going to talk to him about the work they're doing in psychedelics, in developing drugs, developing formulations, molecules to really help provide very kind of specific, targeted molecules to help with these um, conditions and to provide solutions. This area, obviously, we're very early stages in the psychedelic industry, but it's a super exciting time to really kind of understand what do we know from kind of plant medicine and some of the previous lab work that has been done over the years and really bringing in a whole new wave of focus, research, understanding uh, to apply these to a whole host of mental health issues, um, uh, conditions that uh, we're hoping to target and, and hopefully move the needle on uh, in some pretty meaningful ways. So excited about the industry, excited for this conversation, excited to understand what they're doing uh, at Solera and kind of where they're going with this industry. So with that, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be it's a, here. That's yeah, a pleasure. Before we kind of dive into everything that's going on today and some of the research you're doing and some of the interesting results you're getting, give us a little background. How did you, I guess, how did you get into science? How did you get into psychedelics? What was the backstory here? Yeah. So I've always been very scientifically inclined, even from a young age. I grew up in Florida and, you know, there were hurricanes every other year. So just kind of trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And it was really in high school, uh, I took a upper level chemistry course that kind of sparked my interest in the hands-on aspect of it. You know, it was sort of meant to be, I would say. And then, mm -hmm. you know, from there in college, studied environmental chemistry, uh, got my bachelor's degree, and then went into graduate work as, in as a PhD researcher in a natural products chemistry laboratory. So trying to find new drugs from nature. We did a lot of microbial drug discovery, different plants, a lot of marine organisms, doing diving, trying to collect you know, organisms from whether it be Florida Keys, some of these actually came from the marine environment in Antarctica. So uh, trying to find new compounds from there and seeing what they can be useful for. And really, you know, from my natural products PhD, I didn't really see myself going into the cannabis industry, but it was 2015 when I graduated. And obviously that's where you started to see a lot of momentum happening within the space. So from there, I actually joined a cannabis startup by the name of Altmed. They developed the Move product line and I was mm -hmm. really their fifth employee. And, you know, five years later, um, you know, really helped them develop a lot of products, develop unique IP around cannabinoid formulations, whether it be transdermal, different inhalation products, meter dose inhalers and nebulizers, uh, fast acting oral delivery systems. So, you know, it was about 2019 that I, you know, started to see uh, a lot of the results happening with esketamine for depression uh, and its approval there. And then some of the work with psilocybin and quite outstanding results for long-term remission of, of depression, end-of-life anxieties. 
And, you know, I've obviously got a lot of familial kind of ties in the mental health space. I think a lot of people either have it themselves or know people that do. But, you know, that was certainly a driving force. Watching my brother struggle with antidepressants and the depression and bipolar disorder for pretty much his entire life and realizing the limitations of the current SSRIs. You know, obviously there needs innovation and both myself and Dr. Jackie Von Salm, who I've known for 10 years actually from our graduate work together, we decided in 2019 that the time is right for new innovations in psychedelics. Oh. I'm curious, what, what did you learn from cannabis that you've been able to kind of apply to now in the psychedelic world? And what did you think you learned in cannabis that you tried to apply, but maybe didn't work? I mean, give, us, give me a little bit of like what transferred, what didn't transfer. Yeah, so certainly formulation-wise, I learned a lot in cannabis, and the cannabinoids themselves are actually (laughs) quite terrible drugs in the traditional pharmaceutical sense. You want drugs that are water-soluble, you know, maybe a bit shorter of a half-life, and they're excreted a little bit better than cannabinoids are. So certainly working with those compounds was an eye-opening experience and doing a lot of different things with self-emulsifying drug delivery systems, different transdermal delivery systems, which I hadn't had any prior experience with. So, you know, on the science side, certainly in the formulation was eye-opening, but really just kind of the emerging industry of cannabis. And you're seeing a lot of those translate now into psychedelics. So, you know, being a part of a startup, helping it grow from the fifth employee to over 700, certainly learned a lot about business. So kind of taking all those principles and now applying it to, you know, this new emerging industry, which has a lot of potential. Yeah. And, and what didn't translate so well? Like, as you look at the industry, is how is how are psychedelics kind of developing differently than than cannabis did? Or, w- or what is notable in terms of how, how these industries are, are playing out? I guess one thing that I'd be surprised about is you're seeing a similar decriminalization model that you are in cannabis with psychedelics. Um, I believe Washington now has pretty much decriminalized all drug use, not just psychedelics, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think is a great thing. I think locking people up for drug use is a really bad use of resources. Yeah. But it does give me a little bit of hesitation just because the types of drugs that psychedelics are as compared to cannabinoids, you know, much different set and setting with those types of compounds. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe if you eat a ton of edibles, cannabis or THC can be a psychedelic, but generally speaking, you know, they're in a much different class where you can dissolve your yourself and your ego and your settings around you, which can be dangerous if not, you know, done in a controlled setting. Mm-hmm. So I would say that has surprised me. You know, you're seeing a lot of similar people from cannabis go into psychedelics. I'm certainly one of them myself because, you know, they're a schedule one drug. There's a lot of research limitations around it. But as well, at least from a scientific standpoint, you know, there's been 50 years of stagnant innovation. And, you know, we have much better tools now to analyze these, to study how the brain works that we didn't have in the 60s and 70s. So that part of it is really, really fascinating as a scientist. Yeah, I'm sure. What, um, and I guess when, when we talk about psychedelics, like what do you put in that camp, right? Because we've got all these kind of plant based derivatives, we've got lab based things, some of these things maybe not even classified technically as a psychedelic, but are kind of in the mix. Like what do you put in this mix and what's most interesting to you? Yeah, so really the classical psychedelics, these would be LSD, psilocybin, DMT. I would think these are what most people think of as psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Uh, compounds like ketamine are kind of grouped into the psychedelic category 
in a lot of ways it makes sense, but ketamine works on a totally different set of receptors. Most classical psychedelics work directly on the serotonin system, okay. where ketamine is working on NMDA and really doesn't have any crossover to the serotonin system. Actually, strangely enough, ketamine was developed as a different alternative to PCP. Oh, so, you know, that's that's obviously kind of fascinating, much more safe and tolerated than PCP yeah. is. But, you know, whether those compounds be produced naturally or synthetically they're whether it's natural psilocybin or synthetic psilocybin as a chemist, it's the same thing. You know, one thing or one compound that we're really focused on is dimethyltryptamine DMT. Mm -hmm. And this is found in which typically is the ayahuasca brew, which contains two different plants, one containing DMT, another one containing monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So you can actually ingest DMT and have the psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. Really, I think one of the main reasons that yeah. DMT is overlooked is it can't be dosed orally like say psilocybin can or even LSD. So it creates some limitations, but as drug formulators, myself and Dr. Jackie Von Somme, you know, this really opens up a lot of opportunities to deliver these in new ways and create a lot of unique intellectual property around DMT. And so what's the difference in terms of how it actually impacts you? So if you look at like psilocybin, DMT, LSD, I mean, they're all hitting the same receptors or what's give us a sense of how they're similar and how they're different in terms of how they actually affect the human body and the, and the thinking. Yeah, looking at the classical psychedelics, you know, you've got psilocybin, LSD and DMT. Really, it's 5-HT2A as one particular receptor of the serotonin system that creates the visual hallucinations. Mm -hmm. So that activity is shared across all of these compounds. But if you really want to get in the nitty gritty chemistry of it, serotonin and LSD and psilocybin and DMT, they're all very structurally similar. So okay. it's really the difference in how they interact with the other receptors. You know, there's 5-HT1 through 5-HT7 and a lot of subgroups of those, about 14 in total that we know of right now. So it's not just the single receptor 5-HT2A, which gives you the psychedelic effects. It's really the interplay or the entourage effect between how they interact with all those other receptors. And, you know, really, I don't think anyone understands from a endpoint standpoint of how psychedelics have their lasting effects on mood, anxiety, and depression. But, you know, one of the things that we're looking to tackle is I believe it's really the interplay between these receptors that has the mechanism of action and the long-term potential of how psychedelics work. Yeah. And so where have you chosen to focus? So if you, you develop a business around this, you decide, okay, I'm gonna we're going to work on these areas, we're going to produce this stuff to try to investigate these areas. How have you kind of sliced up the world and decided where you're going to focus and what you're going to be developing? Sure. So DMT, like I mentioned, is one of the compounds we are focused on. So creating new delivery formats, one of this is transdermal. So this mm -hmm. would be a patch that you can wear multiple days. We're targeting a sub-psychedelic dose, and we're actually going to be getting this into the clinic at the first half of 2022. So really excited about this particular project. Mm -hmm. You know, we're also looking at other ways to deliver DMT, which from a clinical setting is usually through intravenous needles and yeah. combining a psychedelic drug with a very invasive delivery <laughs> format. There's already enough stigma as it is. So yeah. another way we're looking at this is actually intranasal and de uh, developing some pharmaceutically relevant uh, formulations to deliver it that way. Uh, so we'll be doing some early stage animal readouts to determine dosage for that particular delivery mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that's with DMT. 
And you know, we're also creating new derivatives to DMT and psilocybin. These would be chemical modifications that we make in the lab. And like I mentioned, it's not just a single receptor, uh, 5-HT2A, that creates hallucinations. Mm -hmm. It's really the interplay. And we can now take these compounds and screen them virtually using computers and see how they target 5-HT2A or 5-HT2B, 5-HT6, all these various receptors and start to develop a, a target product profile for new compounds that have the biological effects that we want, whether it be, you know, substance use disorder or depression, but also reduce some of the side effects like hallucinations at 5-HT2A or even with 5-HT2B, which has actually some heart valvular issues over the long term. So trying to make drugs that really have reduced effects there. So we've created a good number of these compounds in the lab already, and we're starting to do some early stage animal readouts, which, you know, we're again, we're really excited. And developing this computational platform, we're able to develop and screen compounds at a much faster rate than we could if we were sitting there synthesizing hundreds and thousands of compounds and testing them biologically to see if they have any effects. So it really gives us kind of an early stage prediction that we wouldn't have otherwise. And is this pretty standard in pharmaceutical research? I mean, give me a comparison on this is how it's always been done and how much this is really different given that we're in psychedelics and in the world that we're in today. So you're starting to see it being more adopted just because, like I mentioned, I mean, technology makes our, our lives a lot easier, a lot more straightforward, better yeah. throughput. So you are starting to see it. And, you know, it also correlates to our computational power now that we have that we didn't have maybe 10, 15 years ago. So we're able to run these simulations at a much faster rate than we could, say, 10 years ago. You know, the field of computational chemistry has been around for a couple of decades, but you're really starting to see better correlations to the biological data that you ultimately get once you create these compounds and put them in animals or humans. So, you know, there are a few select maybe major pharmaceutical companies that are using it. But at this point, there aren't many people that are really applying this to psychedelics you know, compounds that interact in the brain with the various serotonin receptors and looking at the biological outcomes long-term that these can have in humans. Yeah. And what, um, what does it take to actually put this together? I mean, uh, what did you have to amass in terms of resources, capital, people, facilities? And what, it, what does it look like to actually stand a company like this up? Yeah, certainly it takes some smart people to do that. And I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as one of those with computational <laughs> chemistry. It's, it's quite uh, physics heavy, which was never my strong suit. That's kind of why I chose chemistry. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, my co-founder, Dr. Von Salm, she's done a lot of this work in her previous academic role in graduate school, as well as even in the cannabis industry and connecting, you know, the various metabolites in a, a cannabis extract to, mm -hmm. you know, what you see in the end patient. It's basically that indica versus sativa thing and, you know, developing some chemical signatures or compounds that can be useful for specific biological effects. Yeah. Uh, so she's obviously been very instrumental in getting this set up. We also have Dr. Bryce Allen, who is a Harvard, was a Harvard postdoc, worked at Silicon Therapeutics, really is a, a bioinformatics specialist and computational chemistry is, is really what he does day in and day out. We also have Dr. Stephen Austin, who is a molecular biophysicist, which him and I having conversations is like, uh, you know, <laughs> you better get out the sock puppets. Um, but really what he focuses on is protein dynamics. And, you know, really most computational chemistry is you crystallize a protein and it's 
a, a static, non-moving structure, but now applying physics to that particular protein so it can move in a more natural state. And I think that's really kind of the next frontier of where we see computational chemistry going, because really this is how you relate a more fluid, a more reproducible biological system. So now we're starting to incorporate some of those principles into our drug discovery platform, which is, again, really, really exciting. And, you know, I think this is going to be honestly how drug discovery, drug development, drug design happens in the future. And, you know, trying to correlate this to psychedelics is probably going to be challenging, but, you know, we're definitely up for it. Yeah. What does the process look like? I mean, give me a sense of like, what are the stages? How many, I mean, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of different options, winnowing them down. I mean, what, what are the, what, what are the stages that you put this stuff through? Yeah. So it really starts with having a crystal structure of a protein. Let's use 5-HT2A, the serotonin uh, receptor. And this is actually published with LSD bound within the receptor. So now you do x-ray crystallography and you see where all the atoms are of the protein of LSD within the protein. And now the LSD sits within the active site. So LSD obviously is active. It creates hallucinations. So now you can take out LSD and create a compound virtually using computers and then put it back into that protein and see how well it binds compared to LSD or other, other known compounds. You know, really the blessing that we have is psychedelics have been around for a long time. People have done a lot of research on this, frankly, not recently. So we have a lot of experimental data to correlate and actually validate this step of, of computational binding or docking, as they say. And that's just one part of it. We also screen for drugability, you know, whether these are going to hit other toxic side products that we're not interested in. Are they able to be dosed orally? Can they cross the blood-brain barrier? What's their water solubility like? This is a very important aspect for drug development. Yeah. So we're looking at all these kind of simultaneously and, you know, we can screen, you know, a compound a minute, whereas, you know, synthesizing this and going through biological receptors would take, I mean, we'd have to have, you know, a pharmaceutical level company with hundreds of synthetic chemists and biologists screening what we can do in a single day. Yeah. 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 So the whole technology really is accelerating this whole process. It sounds like not only for you, but for the market in general. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really going to take a lot of work and a lot of data to correlate a psychedelic compound to a mechanism of action, which I believe is kind of the holy grail for this, because again, no one really knows. We know it creates psychedelic effects. We know it has long-term benefits, but kind of what happens in there, you know, some people point to neuroplasticity, basically your brain's ability to create new neuronal pathways. And, and this is part of it. You know, it's, it's really an underexplored field and whoever figures this out is going to win a Nobel prize one day. And Maybe it's us, maybe it's someone else, but I'm rooting for yeah. whoever that is. Yeah. And what's what's the end game? All right. It, for you, it's how do you take the work that you're doing now and actually bring it to market as a money-making business? Like, how does this play out for you? Yeah, we see ourselves as a biotechnology company. So it is sort of a longer term play. You're not going to be able to generate revenue early stage. So obviously having investment money come in and, and thankfully we're in a very good space with psychedelics. A lot of people are interested in. We also have a pretty good team and a really good IP strategy. So that's helpful. So we're really set up, at least in the short term, to get our DMT patch into the clinic get some early stage animal data with some of these new compounds and identify, you know, which one or two of those we can take into the clinic and, and put them into humans. You know, from there, there's a myriad of ways that it could go. You know, frankly, we've 
we've had conversations with larger biotech pharmaceutical companies. So there is interest in the space from them. And I know some people will say maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, working with a larger company with better resources to develop and commercialize a drug is something that's very attractive for a small biotech company like ourselves. Sure. Longer term, we are cognizant of, you know, having the right amount of capital to facilitate our later stage clinical trials, which are quite expensive. So, you know, the public markets are an option at some point as well. Yeah. What does it take these days? I mean, if you look at, you know, full phase three clinical trial, getting to that point, like what, what does it take in terms of time, resources, capital to get there? I mean, most people generalize it as a billion dollars in 10 years to get one drug to market. But that also takes into account the failures along the way. You know, about one in 10 drugs from phase one will actually make it into a phase three and, and be approved. Mm-hmm. The good thing with psychedelics is they do have a really great underlying safety profile. They are quite effective for specific disorders. So that cuts out a lot of the, the failure part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in our best case, we can certainly look to market something 2025, 2026. So that's sort of the timeline that we're looking at to commercialize a drug. Certainly, we can accelerate that with with maybe a larger partner coming on board. And, and these licensing opportunities is something that, you know, we're all looking at from a business development standpoint to certainly facilitate and, you know, de-risk some of our own development. Because like I mentioned, to bring a drug to market, it, it takes a lot of capital to do that. Yeah, no, exactly. And what are the conditions that you're most looking that you're looking at or you find, you know, most applicable right now in the work that you're doing? So for a DMT patch, uh, we're going into a phase one study, so we don't necessarily have to choose an indication. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we are focused on, and, and there is some animal data to support it, is anxiety disorders. So DMT is actually the only psychedelic that I'm aware of at this point that actually has this neuroplasticity effect, the ability to regrow brain cells or redirect brain cells at sub-psychedelic doses. And, you know, this was related to LSD, to psilocybin, to ketamine, to DOI, to a host of other commonly known psychedelics. So there is some very interesting activity around DMT that a lot of other compounds don't have. So what we're trying to do with the patch is create, you know, sub psychedelic dosages that we could administer outside of the clinic because, you know, over time, I believe there is going to be a bit of a a hurdle trying to get, you know, the millions of people that have depression or PTSD into the clinic to undergo these day long psychedelic treatments. So we're really looking at trying to get something outside of the clinic and in more traditional sense, I think you're going to see better adoption from insurance companies, which at least in the US really aren't as progressive in terms of psychiatric and, and mental health disorders for counseling and things like that. What have been the big challenges as you as you get into the research, as you're looking at the development of these things? I mean, other than just kind of the, the pure heavy lifting of doing the the drug research or coming up with the, the molecules to actually do the research around, like what other challenges come up around the business to really get this, you know, make this work or get this effective or, or get to the point that you need to get to? From a research standpoint, most of these psychedelics are schedule one drugs. So at least in the US, you can't just easily access these and, and test them for research purposes. Thankfully, we we are working at the University of South Florida, so we're part of their incubator program. Uh, so we have the DEA approval as part of the university to do the research we need. So that mm-hmm. you know was a hurdle and you know we're very thankful for the resources that the university provides, both in personnel as well as this licensure. You know, I think you're starting to see a more favorable outlook from the FDA in regards to psychedelic treatments. 
So currently MDMA, which is ecstasy, is in phase three clinical trials for PTSD. And I believe it's about 70% of the patients after two to three doses of MDMA are no longer are no longer qualified as PTSD patients after a year of two or three doses. Similarly with psilocybin in phase two trials, it's about the 70% as well after one or two doses, and these last for a year. So it's not like something you have to do repetitively. They're only at that one year time frame because that's kind of where they are on their clinical trials. So, you know, I really think the FDA is open to these types of treatments. You know, it is a little bit of a, a different path than most people are taking. You know, I do think there are going to be some challenges in administering these treatments in a clinic because, you know, you can't just take psilocybin and go home with it from a pharmaceutical <laughs> standpoint. Well, you uh, could, but it'd be, you, you may have some problems the rest of the day. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, most of the way these are being designed in the FDA trials is under physician care, under their observation. You, you have a couple of meetings with their clinician beforehand to understand what your problems are, to get you in the right state of mind for this treatment. Then you have basically a full day under the drug experience with psychotherapy with the, the clinician there. And then a couple of follow-up they call reintegration to kind of make rational sense of of your experience yeah and i think with mdma and maps is the company actually doing this as a nonprofit. i think it's something like a hundred clinical hours are needed for a single patient yeah. so you have to have two clinicians supervise one patient and this is the way these are being developed so it is kind of resource intensive and again there's a little bit of a slow adoption by insurance companies to reimburse these types of therapies. You're starting to see it with S-ketamine, uh, which is approved for depression. You know, there are a lot of ketamine clinics out there now, uh, but these are generally all out of pocket. So really having yeah. that insurance coverage uh, is going to be a huge lift to the industry. So one of the things we're, we're focused on, again, is, is trying to develop some compounds that we can dose outside of a clinic. And I think there's going to be better access, better adoption, and less stigmatization, ultimately. Yeah. And your, I mean, I guess, what's your conclusion on the ability of sub, kind of sub-psychedelic, you know, solutions? I guess, how much is the psychedelic element of these compounds needed for the therapeutic benefit? And how much do you just need the kind of underlying cellular regeneration, neuroplasticity element, like where are you finding the, what actually drives the therapeutic outcomes? Yeah. So you are starting to see, I would say a pretty strong correlation between these really high doses of psychedelics for long-term benefits and depression and for PTSD. You know, you can also correlate substance abuse into that as well. And I think it's all part of the, the concurrent talk therapy because really what it does is it creates new patterns of thinking. So a depressed patient, they, they kind of have these negative thought patterns. So what psychedelics do is they sort of recreate a new thought pattern in association with the talk therapy. Yeah. You know, I think with smaller doses, we'll say microdoses, you're mm -hmm. not going to get that huge radical shift kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think for smaller doses, things like anxiety disorder it can be very useful. And that's one of the things we're looking at for DMT. And in terms of creating compounds without psychedelic effects, you know, you can actually still have this neuroplastic effects even with ketamine and ketamine doesn't interact at all with the serotonin receptor system. Yeah. So, you know, creating drugs that don't have psychedelic effects, but can also create new neuron pathways. I think we can do that. And, you know, there is some evidence now being supported with various DMT derivatives that aren't psychedelic, but also have benefits on mood disorder. Mm-hmm. 
They don't have as long of a duration, say, you know, one dose, one year that you do for psychedelics. But again, if you're creating something that can be dosed outside of the clinic, you know, this is something that can be dosed a little more reproducibly. Yeah. And again, outside of the clinic is going to be a hurdle. Yeah, I get it. And tell us about some of the research you're doing now and what's what's been coming up. What are the, some of the things you're learning most recently? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned these non-psychedelic psychedelics, and mm-hmm. we've created these now in the lab, and we're doing some early stage animal testing. And, you know, we've seen with our computational platform, which we call BRAIN, the Bioreceptor Activity Intelligence Network. So, BRAIN is a, a much better acronym for mm-hmm. it. And that's really the combination of all the computational chemistry and and virtual screening that we do. So we've identified some compounds that aren't psychedelic and now we've created these and are starting to see some readouts in animals. And the main way to test for hallucinogenic effects, obviously, instead of dosing in humans and seeing what happens, but ultimately you have to go through animal testing before you get to that stage, mm-hmm. is we've done some early stage studies with our one of our compounds and we're seeing non-hallucinogenic effects, no head twitches, no real other behavioral changes. You know, we have some reports of anxiolytic effects. So we're doing some more tests to see if potentially can be used for anxiety or depression. So this is partly validation to what we're seeing computationally, which is really great. But, you know, again, you really need the biological outcomes uh, to lead the drug discovery project. So we're really happy to see that. And then on the DMT front, we're actually in the process of submitting an investigational new drug with the FDA to begin a clinical trial next year in 2022. So, you know, all of these things are kind of shaping up. Research and development is never easy, but in a lot of ways, you know, our pipeline has come together more streamlined than I was anticipating. So, uh, that's always uh, reassuring as a scientist, yeah, but I'm going to knock on wood as I'm saying that. <laughs> Just in case. Chris, this is a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, so um, they can visit our website. It's solera.com. That's P-S-I-L-E-R-A.com. You know, you can find us on all of the social media platforms. Just search Solera. Uh, or you can contact uh, our website at info at solera.com. Great. I'll make sure that everything there is in the show notes so people can get that information. Highly encourage everyone to check it out. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, you too, Bruce. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast.